Good afternoon, everyone. This is yours truly, Mac on the Rock, for the Concrete Conservative Hour. What a what a week to be a conservative, huh? Our president was acquitted, and the Democrats look like a bunch of petulant children, not to mention liars and thieves. And uh, their candidates are kind of lost in the wind. Old lies and old ways of stealing from us as taxpayers are just going on like an old song, just going, going, going. Now they all sound alike. Their best candidate can't even get 1%, Tulsi Gabbard. At least she's concise, positive, pleasant, good-looking, veteran, patriotic. She's out of left field, raised in Hawaii, so she's not from the mainland. The best candidate they have, and she can't get past 1%. And she's a shark, too, you know. She fights Hillary Clinton, like, toe-to-toe, files defamation lawsuits against her. That's my kind of Democrat, I mean. Come on. And yet, she's hearing crickets, her campaign. I don't even know how she's running. I mean, I wonder who's who's funding her at this point. Well, today, hopefully we'll get a call from uh, Phil Kirpin from American Commitment and uh, Public Advocacy Group. He's going to talk to us about WARP, the the supplemental insurance for people on Medicare. Once you get a certain age, you can add to your Medicare plan with WARP, a little bit higher premium, and uh, it, it you know gets you your services. A high, high-end service. Well, he says that that's a scam. So I'm looking forward to hearing the details of that. It's one of those situations where I'm taking care of an elderly woman myself, uh, my mother, advanced age dementia, and uh, she's under hospice care now, and she is WARP. So I'd like to see why he saw, saw it to be a scam. I'm very interested in... Uh, my parents paid for this uh, long before my father passed away, so I like to know the details of that. But going back to the Democrats, I mean, I you know I keep on thinking of McConnell, who has been quietly, you know, approving and voting on federal judges that Trump has put before him. So, in other words, the Federalist Society, who's picking these judge candidates, uh, are doing a massive job quietly fixing the country through the court system. Because, you know, this progressive movement's just got to go. It's got to end. I mean, it's a hundred years of one failed policy after another. I mean, we're talking ah, since 1913, when the progressives really took off, uh, galvanized by the election of Woodrow Wilson. This thing has been nonstop. And they really do seek a one-party system. I had a liberal uh, accuse me of that just the other day. I mean, they, they project onto you what they know they're doing themselves. They are the ones who saw and achieved a one-party system. They practically have a one-party system in California. I mean, there's little pockets of congressional districts that have Republicans in them. But, you know, forget it. Everybody's a Democrat. And at the state level, it's even worse. And, uh, you know, people are flocking out of there. But the people who are flocking out of there don't necessarily work conservative wherever they land. A lot of Californians come to Texas and they don't necessarily vote for conservative you know social policies or conservative 
tax policies or try to reduce the size of government, they seem to be voting the same way they've always voted. That's why I call it a, a political bipolar disorder. The book I wrote, I call it the progressive virus. And, you know, a lot of people frown when I say, you know, it's, you know, biological. No, man, it's not biological. It's a virus like a computer virus. It scratches a liberal's hard drive. It uh, undermines their very argument by the things that they propose that they think are so wonderful. Not only will they not work, but the, the sum total of all their policies drives down the birth rate of the very people they need to fund their social programs into the future. Notice how we have a negative birth rate during the Obama administration. It's still going down, down, down. Well, they support gay marriage. They support long, um, all types of termed abortions. How many people have been aborted since the 70s? I don't know. 75 to 90 million? Who will really know? Well, think of those people who were born legally, paying taxes, having children. We're a nation of 320 million. How many millions would we have been today? Okay, considering that, you know, people are born and reproduce. Well, if we would have been reproducing at the same pace we were reproducing in the late 60s, what type of country would we have today? Would we even be in a budget deficit? Would Social Security be broke? Something to ponder. I mean, it's not like government would have changed at all. I mean, government would have, same, would have been the same inefficient self. But there would be a lot more people paying into the fraudulent tax system and feeding that Ponzi scheme that is Social Security Administration. So think about that for a moment. If we hadn't aborted... 90 million people since Roe v. Wade was passed, which didn't make abortion uh, legal. It made it illegal to prevent someone from aborting. And there were supposed to be time constraints on when the fetus could be terminated. And no one ever thought that perhaps we should have cut it off at when the fetus felt pain. We didn't even consider that. That was 12 weeks when there's a spinal cord. But uh, we didn't even consider that. We came up with some, I don't know, we, they came up with some theory that when it could sustain itself outside the womb, from that moment on, it could not be terminated. Well, you know, if a baby's born, it can't sustain itself outside the womb without being fed and taken care of and nurtured and, and actually... There's evidence that uh, touched, hugged, spoken to, cared for, not just being fed. So uh, we have to understand that uh, this country isn't really the country that could have or should have been. It's a country that is. Our reality is based on a lot of government policies that have changed the very fabric of the nation. And it's just got to stop. And it's just got to stop. It's It hasn't... None of the plans that the progressives have come up with, none, zero, have achieved their goals. Social Security did not assure any type of comfortable retirement. It was supposed to be supplemental retirement. Well, it wasn't perceived that way. It wasn't reminded folks that way. Nobody saved from that moment on. Massive credit card debt has ensued since the 30s. Back in the 30s, there wasn't many people with credit cards, but still, 
nobody saved. That's my point. Later on, when credit cards became popular in the mid-70s with the famous American Express, never leave home without it, people just racked up debts and they were written off. And they had a little scam called the FICO score. Three credit agencies coming up with different scores with the same information based on payment formula. In other words, how well you paid off your debts, not as how much debt you can take on based on income and savings. No, no, they reverted the whole thing. They flipped it upside down on its head because everything is politically bipolar when it comes to this progressive movement. The FICO score came up with some opaque formula based on how well you pay your debts and no real calculation for how much you save in order to take on debt. So in other words, you're forced to to take on debt in order to raise your score and pay it down. So it actually is upside down. It actually incentivizes insolvency. But this is the, the stuff I wanted to talk to you about today because I've, I've been reading this book about the history of the 11 nations that made up the United States by uh, an author named Colin Woodard. 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 And... Uh, I guess he elaborated from another book that was the eight nations of America, and he now believes there were 11 nations of America. And uh, I remember how we were taught growing up about the foundations of our country, you know, starting off with the Mayflower Compact and the the Nina, the Pinta, and Santa Maria. That's as far back as I can go with Christopher Columbus' voyage to America as, you know, basically a Spanish discovery of the New World. But it completely flipped its head at the Plymouth Rock in 1604, 1605, 6, 7, 8, 9, 1600s, when the Anglos came to the northern part of this country. And I always thought it was people that that were seeking religious uh, freedoms. And, uh, well, in this book, the community is called the the Tidewater Nation. And the Tidewater Nation was an abject disaster. Majority of people, the 3,500 who came originally, uh, were stranded, starved, didn't want to work, didn't want to plow the land, didn't want to farm, totally uncooperative. The majority of them were indentured servants, white people. Indentured servitude is, uh, you know, basically signing a contract to come to America on a free ride, on a free ship, and you were basically under contract from a nobleman, someone who uh, basically paid your way and was going to be sovereign over you. And when the term is up, you were supposed to be promised a plot of land so you can farm it yourself and, uh, I guess, uh, sign indentured servants to farm your land. Well, the whole history of the Jamestown colony in 1609 was that of violence, theft, pillage, uh, uncooperative uh, living, uh, skirmishes with the natives. None of this, you know, Thanksgiving, you know, this Thanksgiving feast and stuff like that. There are some stories of making peace with Indians, but that didn't come for a long time. In the meantime, it was completely disastrous. I mean, they were eating each other, eating dead people starving. It was not fun. Uh, lo and behold, as people just kept on coming. So 
what saves the Davestown colonies and Maryland, I mean, sorry, Virginia as a whole, was just more people arriving. So the word didn't get out how miserable it was out here in the New World. It just People just felt that England was worse. So a lot of ex-cons, a lot of destitute people, a lot of poor people came to Virginia as indentured servants. So I think we've exaggerated too much the 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 slavery that occurred almost 50 years later uh, as these Virginians headed south, first in North Carolina and then farther south, where the slave trade ensued. But uh, it was intended to be indentured servitude contracts. But when they realized that the, the African slaves didn't even have any grasp of language, uh, the English language, then obviously became straight up a cheaper version of indentured servitude slavery. But the ones who did get educated ended up becoming indentured servants. In fact, there's one, Anthony Johnson, a black man who was an indentured, who was given his indentured servitude. Uh, somehow, some way he was more educated and uh, he and he and Toad uh, committed to indentured servitude of other blacks. He, it was said that he gave you a, a house and a home and a, a, like a, a safe place if you ran off from your plantation and you managed to get to him. He somehow uh, was able to put you under his wing, put you under indentured servitude, and somehow promise your security. So that comes up in this chapter. And those that nation was called the Tidewater Nation. So as I read this book more and more, uh, I will give you updates. Um, if you want to get it on Amazon, there it is, The American Nations by Colin Woodard. And I finished the Tidewater chapter, and he talked about, it, at the end, the end of the Tidewater chapter was how more, since Virginia was basically uns, uns, unsophisticated people, uh, Maryland became a little bit more polished uh, types of people from the same western side, or I should say, yeah, I think it's the western side of Scotland and England. So the Maryland folks were a little bit more prepared to deal with the horrors of the New World. Maybe, maybe it's because it came a little bit later, but uh, they were more Catholic, and they were more associated with Charles I, um, reign in the 1600s, and um, the descendants of our founding fathers, Washington, Madison, and Mason, although they came from Virginia's noblemen, there was already an established lineage of noblemen, which these three gentlemen are offsprings of. Maryland had um, a clear path to uh, no, uh, nobility because of they came already with the blessings of Charles I. And, of course, you can, you can tell by the counties, Prince George's County, St. Mary's County, and uh, you can see how Maryland was a little bit more educated and more uh, polished as a society as opposed to Maryland, uh, as opposed to Virginia that was just, you know, indentured servitude through and through and therefore much more difficult to deal with as a society. Uh, people were much more abused, uh, much more uh, discriminatory, and much more restricted. The court systems were completely corrupt of noblemen's family members, uh, complete uh, 
disregard for civil rights or individual liberties or anything of that nature. So you can see how we're all lied to, basically. Everything that we learned about our history, it just, it's inconsistent with the harsh realities we all experience in life. And I think that they buttered this up to make it more glorious and romantic. I don't know, for to create a nation, nation's pride. I mean, why? You know, I always wonder why. Why tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you, God? Because it's not a, it's not necessarily positive truth. You know what I mean? The, the, the evolution of man has been a series of plights, wars, famines. It's just we, there's a reason why we believe in a God, you know? There's a reason why there's a God to look up to and and seek hope and for a brighter day and better tomorrows and stuff like that because life has been really, the story of man has been really hard, man. And I don't know why we choose to butter it up and I don't know why we choose to seek government to solve these problems between human beings because, you know what I mean? We can solve our problems if we all are accountable. So it's time to change the subject and... Let's see if this is Phil. Good afternoon. This is Mac on the Rock with the Concrete Conservative on Blink Radio 94.5, Key Biscayne. Who do I have the pleasure to speak with? Yeah, hi, it's Phil Kerman. I'm supposed to have an interview. Yes, Phil, how are you? Um, I'm, I'm Mr. Everything here. I'm uh, the host. I'm the producer. I'm the interviewer and the... The statement I have on the email is, WARP is a scam. And I believe you're going to elaborate on why that is true. Well, um, we've been seeing this trend now for a number of years where um, when we have these big healthcare policy debates in Washington, AARP weighs in as sort of the 800-pound gorilla, and they uh, sort of throw things in the direction that they want to because politicians fear that they represent seniors who are voters and, uh, and so on and so forth. But the, the actual policy positions that they take almost always coincide with the business interests of their corporate partners. And if you dig a little bit deeper into it, AARP is making over $600 million per year from United Health. Uh, they exclusively sell United Health insurance products. Uh, they take 5% off the top of all of those products. They call it a royalty because if they called it a commission, they'd have to comply with all of the state uh, insurance regulations and rules, uh, but they call it a royalty to dodge that. And essentially, uh, they now function in large part as sort of the political advocacy arm of the, you know, the largest health insurance company, United Health. And then you get these very strange situations, like, for instance, we saw AARP lead the fight against rebate reform and the idea that uh, the pharmaceutical benefit managers should not be exempt from the federal anti-kickback statute, because currently, unlike anyone else in healthcare, um, if the pharmacy benefit managers go to the drug manufacturers and say, we want you to charge us a high price but give us a very large rebate, uh, they are allowed even in a government program like Medicare Part D, they are allowed to pocket the rebate and put it into their own profits and charge the customers at the point of sale based on that high list price uh, because they have an exemption from the federal anti-kickback statute. Trump wanted to end that, which should be a no-brainer for a seniors group. Uh, and Trump wanted to require rebates to be passed on at the point of sale. 
and AARP fought against that. There's but how do they how do they fight against it? Because they own the senators and the congressmen. Well, yeah, I mean, they sent a tremendous amount of advocacy into Congress and into the White House, and they just sort of created a lot of blowback. And, um, you know, to me, there's no way to make sense of that other than the fact that the largest pharmacy benefit manager, OptumRx, is owned by United Health, and AARP is making $600 million plus a year from them. And so, you know, it, it really distorted that debate. And then, you know, more recently... They do you, do you, oh, excuse me, do you believe that Trump will give up on this fight, or is he just... Well, they put it on the shelf for now, at least, which was disappointing, because originally it was supposed to take effect on January 1st of this year, and they seem to have backed off it. And I've not seen any indication they're going to come back to that idea. So I, don't, I it, it doesn't look good right now. Does it, is it a, would be a mandate from Congress, or was it going to be executive order? Well, they were going to do it by uh, rulemaking uh, at, at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, and... Uh, and those people don't like him too much, those career bureaucrats. But, uh, you know, it could be done by Congress. Uh, Senator Braun from Indiana has a bill to do it. And so it could be done either way, uh, in theory. Well, okay, so now, um, uh, who gave WARP so much power? Uh, had there been government, uh, had there been the government regulators, correct? Because it couldn't have started, I mean, was it started by United Healthcare, or was it the government giving United Healthcare the blessing to... To, to basically hand off this type of power to WARP? Uh, well, AARP has, of course, been around for a long time. And, uh, and originally they were largely a membership-supported organization, and, you know, they were kind of just viewed as this sort of benign seniors group, and uh, people joined them for the discounts and that kind of thing. Um, they've become much more politically engaged and much more business-oriented over the years. And, in fact... You know, if you look at their last couple of years of tax returns, they're retaining about $200 million a year, uh, which is interesting because they're a nonprofit. And, you know, if they were a for-profit, you'd say they're pretty profitable. Uh, but they are, a, they are a nonprofit, but they've developed these business relationships that are extraordinarily lucrative. And, of course, they, they're paying very high staff salaries and so forth. But they're still, uh, you know, accumulating these very large balances. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a question, I think, as to whether sort of this core business model they have, um, it is legal. I remember, as I said, they call what most of us would consider a commission, the 5% they charge on all these insurance products, they call it a royalty for licensing their AARP name, and then they say that means they don't have to comply with any of the rules and regulations and laws and so forth uh, regarding you know, insurance sales. Uh, there, are, there are a bunch of lawsuits in different states challenging that. So far, though, they, they seem to be getting away with it, so maybe it is legal. Uh, you know, my whole view on this, though, is, look, if AARP is going to function more like an arm of the largest insurance company in the country than they are a seniors group, uh, you know, maybe that's legal, maybe that's okay, but our elected officials need to understand that so that when they're considering these policy debates, they don't get a flood of letters from AARP and think, oh, my God, this must be what seniors want. I better back off. You know, I better do what they want because they represent so many voters. They need to instead look at it as, okay, this is the insurance industry position, and, you know, I'll consider it, but I'm going to also consider all the arguments from the other side. Well, did the uh, what did they promise the the seniors uh, what was the original um, promise that they made to the senior? I think the audience needs to know. What is it that uh, ARP, I'm 55 years old, so I'm not really uh, WARP yet, but I'm I'm very close. I'm already getting their, their 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 literature, and I'm not really paying attention to it really. But I do have United Healthcare, so I imagine that's why. 
Now, what are they promising the seniors, uh, uh, controlling costs or the supplemental premium that they're asking for, that they're making their royalties on? What's the promise? Is to keep the the premium lower or what? Because I don't find my premium uh, really well, low. Well, the, uh, they, their number one product that they sell is what's called a Medigap plan or a Medicare supplemental plan. And that's for people who are in traditional Medicare plans. These are the, these are the plans that cover things that Medicare doesn't cover. So it sort of wraps around the traditional. Yeah, that's what my mother has. I, I treat my mother who, I mean, I care for my mother as her guardian. She's advanced uh, dementia. And, um, you know, she pays uh, about... Five five eighty a month, and she hasn't been working for decades now. She's eighty nine years old, and she has to keep on paying in. So I don't really know the cost benefit of it, other than she does have her you know pretty you know pretty uh, solid hospice care at this point because she's you know immobile and not speaking or anything. But I do have uh, out of my own pocket, uh, um, you know, twenty four hour care living with her. So. WARP promised her what, and what did she get? Because I'm at this point, I have no idea if she got a deal or not. Because it was a. Well, the thing is, the, the thing is that a lot of people don't realize if you go to AARP to buy your insurance product, and the Medigap is their number one seller, but if you go through them, you will only see United Health plans because they have an exclusive deal with them. So you're not necessarily seeing what makes the most sense for you. You're not going to see any Blue Cross plans there. You're not going to see any other insurer there except. Uh, United Health, and because of that extra five percent, you, you might actually be paying more than a comparable United Health plan that doesn't have the AARP branding. And so, uh, you know, I, it's not clear to me what the uh, what the extra value is uh, from the customer standpoint. Obviously, from their standpoint, you know, it's a, it's a huge source of revenue for them. Um, but but my, I would just caution you know, anyone who's looking at considering one of these plans. Maybe it's maybe it's the best one for you. Maybe it makes sense for you. But you you need to look at other you need to look at other sources of information and compare because if you only go to ARP, you are only going to see United Health plans. No, is that all fifty states? That's uh, everywhere. They have an exclusive deal. They they exclusively sell United Health. And but uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shields are also in all fifty states, even though they don't have. The uh, you know, I don't know. Pretty much, I mean, there's there's usually at least an affiliate, uh, Blue Cross, pretty much everywhere. And you know, there, there. My, my point is, there are there are a lot of uh, there, there are almost certainly other options available to you, which you'll never know. <laughs> that you'll never see if all you go to is ARP. Now, American Commitment does what? Uh, trying to change these rules? Uh, why? For instance, why, why aren't? We the- well, let me tell you why we care so much about this because uh, we've now seen two major healthcare debates in a row. They were severely distorted by AARP, their opposition to rebate reform and their support for Nancy Pelosi's drug price controls, which uh, are so draconian. Uh, basically, she has the government set the price of a drug, and if the manufacturer doesn't like it, uh, they get taxed 95 percent of their total gross sales. And so they basically have no choice. And if you do something like that, you're not going to get any new drugs, which cost billions of dollars to develop because government's going to set the price. No one's ever going to make their money back. And so it's one of these things where short term, yeah, you get lower prices, but Long term, you're going to pay a huge, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, the R and D, the R and D is just uh, insurmountable. Yeah, a very, very bad idea. But you know, they they supported it. Uh, Real seniors group wouldn't support that because they would want new cancer drugs, new Alzheimer's drugs, and so forth. But they supported it because it'd be worth a lot of money. To, you well, know, now, how about Trump's? So, how about Trump's right to try? Is that affected the Pelosi plan? 
where you uh, you can I don't go. Know. I, I don't know how much it affects that because those are more experimental drugs that haven't been approved yet. I'm not sure that they would ever be, you know, uh, large enough sellers uh, to be, you know, pulled into the Pelosi thing. It's more for the blockbuster drugs, uh, the major revenue-producing drugs where they want government to just set the price. Um, but listen, here's the thing. Here's why we care about it as a free market group that works on, you know, all these is economic issues and definitely on health care reform. Nancy Pelosi has set up a cliff on May 22nd of this year. A lot of federal health care programs are going to expire on May 22nd, which is sort of a weird date uh, for that to happen. And that's because they did, like, partial extensions to that date. Uh, they did not run through the whole year like all the other spending programs. She did that on purpose because she wants to have a must-pass health care bill that the Senate has to pass. And her view is that she can look it up with a bunch of socialist garbage like her, you know, plan nationalizing prescription drug pricing. And uh, if you watch any Fox, you've seen that AARP is running all these ads supporting her bill and taking like President Trump's words out of context to basically say he supports Pelosi's plan, which he does not, to try to pressure the Senate. And I just think that if we can't sort of take the mask off and say, wait a second, when you when you see these messages from ARP, they represent the insurance industry. They don't represent seniors. We could get a very bad outcome here in the next couple of months uh, if you know senators sort of panic and and uh, go along with something like that. Yeah, and I think uh, would you say that that's attributable to the Republicans never getting to sixty senators? I mean, once do you think this nation would actually turn the corner if the damn Republicans can? you know, stop looking at themselves in the mirror, stop being afraid of their own shadow, and actually earn 60 senators in the U.S. Senate so that they can... No, that act- would help, although, frankly, I think if the Democrats take the Senate back, they're going to kill the filibuster anyway. Uh, so I, I don't know. Well, well they killed it for judges, but why would you think that they would kill it a kill the filibuster just to what? To, to... I think the next time they have Democrats uh, in the White House, the House, and the Senate, they'll kill it so they can pass all their crazy socialist stuff, and they're not going to worry about down the line. Okay, so that means that nobody will bring it back either. Like, yeah, most likely. Well, that would be a saving grace for for the Republican deal, Party. You know, the problem with that, outside of the fact that it means next time you have all Republican control, you could do a lot of good things. I mean, the downside is you don't want policies to swing wildly back and forth uh, with the political pendulum. You want to have a little more stability and predictability than that. Well, look what's happened. We haven't had filibuster. We, being conservatives, I admit it on my show, considering the show's name, uh, we haven't had a filibuster-proof sentence since the 1911 congressional session. I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, look, I think on balance it would probably be better for us to not have it, to be honest. I've actually been calling for ending it since... Uh, the election night 2014, when the Republicans won back the Senate, I said they should just kill the filibuster and put all their best ideas on Obama's desk every day, make him veto it, and then pass things when we get a Republican president. Exactly. And why don't we do that? Because, look, we lost in That's 2018. Mostly because I think they're going to do it when they have control. It's like, why wait? But, you know, I... Yeah, but they can't do any more damage than they've already no, done. Unfortunately, we're a Democrat House. You think we can win that back? It's possible. Look, I mean, to, to my mind, the biggest... Uh, a political impact of this whole stupid impeachment thing is that Democrats basically wagered the House on the outcome of the presidential, because I don't understand what psychology could cause anyone now to go into a voting booth, vote for President Trump, and then vote Democrat for House. It's basically like voting for four more years of impeachment. Exactly. I think I think they're really, I think by doing what they did on impeachment, they're going to significantly reduce the number of split-ticket voters, and I now think that if President Trump is re-elected, which as of today looks pretty good, uh, he's got a very good chance of winning the House for that reason. I just don't think there are going to be many ticket splitters this time. Well, uh, uh, I think we should say as of tomorrow. 
because you know after tomorrow's primary, you're going to see Bernie come out ahead, and Biden will be quipping into the distance. And you can tell every time Biden falls farther and farther below uh, the the uh, lower in the standings, the stock market goes up a hundred points. You know, it's uh, it, because they know that Bernie uh, is easily defeated, but Trump you know beats Bernie very easily. So and they're going to have to turn to Michael Bloomberg as their uh, as their uh, white knight. Well, at the same time, Michael Bloomberg is coming out uh, in video propaganda on ads with Barack Obama. That's kind of like uh, that's. Are you seeing it everywhere down there? I heard he's spending big in Florida. Yes, uh, I don't know. That's I don't think that works. I really don't. We have a lot of seniors here, and nobody's really happy about the lies behind Obamacare. So I don't see how he's planning to. Uh, get votes in Florida, uh, you know, parading Barack Obama around. I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't. Uh, you know, I think if it comes down to Bloomberg and Sanders, uh, you know, Trump's in beautiful shape no matter which one of them pulls it out because, you know, the supporters of either one are not going to support the other if they win. Okay, so now, will Bloomberg uh, ask for a, a Budweiser box to stand on or Coca-Cola box to stand on during the debate? Uh, he'll bring, he'll bring a custom-made uh, box it cost millions of dollars. From Louis Vuitton. Stage materials and, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, it'll stand on a Louis Vuitton box, jeweled, on a trunk. Jeweled, uh, the whole of the works. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was uh, pretty hilarious how Trump just threw it out there without, you know, just the old that. I saw a Bernie Sanders campaign surrogate on TV repeating it, saying we will pay for his box if he comes to the debate. It's, am- it's amazing, the audacity of Trump. He really could care less whether you call him on something or not. He just says that, you know, hey, they're going to fake news me. I'm going to fake news them. And he just fire with fire. And uh, they're going to lie about me. I'm going to lie about them. Bloomberg did use a box or whatever they call it, an elevated platform at his podium, I think is what they called it when he was mayor. So, I mean, the president wasn't making that up. And since he's a New Yorker, he has the right to say it. Well, he he remembers. He knows. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now what became of... Um, I I did some reading about uh, healthcare, and there was there was a buyout. There was a moment of a tremendous amount of buyouts of the top five health insurance companies being reduced to three, and I believe that uh, Loretta Lynch blocked one of the mergers so that it wouldn't be so damn obvious that we have less choice, not more choice, as Obamacare ex- uh, proclaimed. Is does that hold water today? Or, of the larger insurance, have they gobbled up each other in order to deal with this uh, bureaucracy behind Obamacare, or is that is is it uh, are the new players in the market from abroad uh, buying into our? I mean, who are the big players now? Are there are there less or more choices for Americans in terms of health care? Well, um, there are definitely fewer insurance companies than there used to be in terms of uh, you know the major insurance companies selling the qualified plans in the Obamacare marketplaces and in the employer market. Uh, because there have been mergers. and uh, Yeah, so I, I was correct. The mergers did finally yeah. go through. Now, there are, however, there are, however, there is now sort of a parallel market that Trump has uh, brought back, which are uh, these short-term limited-duration insurance or, or fixed-term renewable insurance plans, which are mostly old-style indemnity plans that you know, sort of they don't have networks. It's just a financial product, basically. Uh, you know, you... Spend, you, you spend past the deductible, you get whatever percentage of what you spend above that. And uh, those policies are much less expensive than the comprehensive policies uh, 
they don't. And you get to choose your you get to choose your physician. Yeah. Yes. Typically, yes. As far as I know, uh, they're they're basically old style indemnity plans. You go to whatever provider you want, and then you get you know you get your percentage back based on the way the policy is written. Uh, now these policies, though, they don't have all of the rules and regulations and protections of the Obamacare policy, so they can exclude pre-existing conditions and they can rate you based on health status and all that kind of stuff. So you know your situation, whether it's a good option, depends on your exact situation and so forth. But I think the fact that they're back and available in most places, some places banned them. I live in D.C., so of course our city council banned them, as did the state of California and New York and others. I, I assume they're available in Florida, but I haven't checked that for sure. Uh, but that's got a whole bunch of different companies uh, that, that are not the major names that are that are playing in that market, and that's another alternative option for people. The, the big thing that Congress did under President Trump when we had a Republican Congress was they tacked repeal of the individual mandate into the uh, tax reform bill, which is a big deal because it means now if you buy a non-Obamacare policy like those short-term limited duration plans, uh, you're not going to be penalized on your taxes for not having an Obamacare-compliant policy. And so the number of insurance companies doing sort of the big comprehensive plans uh, through the uh, Obamacare exchanges or through the employer markets is less, but we've now got sort of a lot of new upstart companies in kind of this parallel market that Trump has brought back that, that might be a good option for some people. And the other thing is that uh, even in the Obamacare exchanges, Trump sort of reversed the decline of those. I think the last year under Obama, it was something like 40% of the counties in the country only had one participating insurer. That's now down significantly. So most places, even if you are in Obamacare, you've got two or three, two or three different companies to choose from. And, you know, that's not great. Oh, so he improved, those situ- he improved the situation. He's pretty significantly stabilized the Obamacare exchanges, which is interesting, because all we ever hear about from Democrats is how he's sabotaging Obamacare, he's ruining Obamacare. If anything, he sort of saved Obamacare, because uh, premiums finally stabilized. They stopped going up dramatically every year, and uh, you know, insurers started you know, coming back to participate a little bit more. And so the Obamacare markets, they're still pretty awful. They're still pretty expensive. You know, they're double the price they were before Obamacare and that for comparable policies and that kind of thing. But uh, they've stopped, for the most part, going up uh, dramatically the way they were, and they've sort of stabilized. And we've now got, you know, other non-Obamacare options available as well uh, for people who are sort of lower utilizers of health care. Those might make sense. And so I think uh, President Trump has actually made significant progress on health care, even though Democrats keep beating him over the head and using it as a political issue. I think he's got a pretty good story to tell on it. And uh, Yeah, but he, he has difficulty telling it. He does, and he's going to need to be, he's going to need to do a much better job of that in the general election. I don't see why he doesn't so pass he's those. Going to articulate, he's going to need to articulate very clearly what the plan is on health care going forward if he does win back the House, because I, he, he can't have another situation like the last one where nobody can agree on a plan and then they end up getting, you know, nothing major done. Yeah, I mean, it would be easy for him to just pass that one to Pence, who's very articulate and very stern and stoic. That's He's a perfect sterile explain, uh, explainer of health care if you just let the let the vice president take on that mission and explain what the, the administration has done. Also, I think there was a real benefit to our economy was the, the uh, 66 limit employees in order to uh, people keeping their employee staff under 66 employees in order to not have to give everybody health care. That really helped small business because people were not growing, were not expanding because the, the at 66 employees, once you hire the 67th employee, you had to give everybody uh, in your staff health care in their, you know, in their paychecks uh, and fund it that way as opposed to 
if you're kind, you give $100 to each employee when you only have three or four of them, and they go out and do the exchanges on their own. But once you hit that 66-mile marker, uh, you know, you had to pay uh, an exorbitant amount to ensure everybody in your company, and people just wouldn't expand. They would just—that was probably the number one reason why uh, Obama never got— over a you know 1.5 GDP throughout his 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 presidency, I think he had one year he had 3.5, but out of eight years, if you divide up all the GDP numbers, it wasn't more than a one and a half, and never got to two. And I think it was directly related to that part of Obamacare that people were just afraid to expand. I mean, I restaurant companies were being interviewed all the time about keeping corporations separate, even though they own like 20 restaurants, they couldn't. They couldn't buy. They couldn't. They couldn't join them, all twenty restaurants in one corporation because it would. It would. It, it would exercise. It would uh, trigger the Obamacare uh, regulation, forcing everybody to be insured. So I think that was uh, something that Trump got rid of that really helped the economy because boom, people started buying. You know, small small uh, businesses started to buy other small businesses, especially in the tech sector where there was a lot of tech sector companies with really innovative people in them, and they just needed a little bit more infusion of capital so a larger competitor could buy them out and they could stay, you know, stay developing their their technologies. But the healthcare would have probably forced upon them, would have probably put them out of business. And then we all lose in that in that regard, especially when it's me- medical technology. So what else do we, we can, we, do, we really don't, as Republicans, we really don't have a plan in any way or form to uh, mitigate the rising cost of healthcare, it's just it's just not going to happen, is it? Not in this, not in the twenty first century. Or is there some? You do you all see any idea where we can lower the cost of healthcare across the board without getting the government involved? Well, I, I'm a big fan of the Republican Study Committee plan that came out a few months ago. I think that's the best comprehensive health care plan we've seen from Republicans, and, and I hope it'll sort of become the consensus. Um, it deals with you know high-cost people uh, who have free expensive pre-existing conditions directly with guaranteed coverage pools to subsidize them without driving up the cost for everyone else. It's got a huge expansion of health savings accounts, which I think is, is really critical. In fact, it, it, inclu- it increases the allowable HSA contribution to $9,000 for an individual and $18,000 for families, and it allows uh, premiums to be paid from HSAs, which is currently not allowed. And so we'd be able to use pre-tax money uh, to buy premiums and to buy, you know, uh, all kinds of health care services up to that much more generous amount. And I think that would free up people to have a lot more ownership and control of their health care dollars and have a lot more competition. Uh, at the same time, we'd be driving down costs by taking, you know, the highest cost individuals out of the market and subsidizing them directly. And there are a lot of other provisions. It's a pretty comprehensive bill. But I, I think that uh, I, I hope that that Republican Study Committee bill will become sort of the consensus uh, Republican plan. I would hope that we, we see President Trump uh, embrace it and campaign on it, because I think that gives us a lot of very good things to talk about. And you know, I really don't want us to be in a position, again, where we get a Republican House, Senate, and White House and can't agree on a plan. So I hope yeah, that's, that's, that, that, hurt, that, hurt, that, that set us back so bad. Right at a time when we really could turn the corner economically and save the country economically and pretty much 
put the Democrats in, in a minority status. We fumbled the ball. 46 retired in the House in 2018, and now we're right back to where we started. Now, going back to the health savings accounts, is it a dollar-per-dollar matching situation? Uh, is the government involved at all? Do they, they put money in the savings account, or only we do and the employer? Uh, I think the um, – I'd have to go look at the details. There might be some – government money for, for lower income or something like that. But for most people, it's not. It's uh, just, but you, you, but you get to deduct, you get to de- deduct it from your taxes is really the benefit, uh, you know, from that standpoint. So, you so that's the incentive. Yeah, correct. Okay. Now it's also the incentive to, to stay healthy too. So you don't, you don't, uh, you don't take down exactly, your... Exactly. Yeah. If you spend less than the amount that you put in there and are giving you, you can, you can keep it. You can roll it over. You can invest it. And uh, that becomes very, very important because if you can build a large balance in there and have that money, you know, when you get up in years and you've got all kinds of health expenses, um, you know, you got to deduct it when it went in. And as long as you're using it for qualified health expenses, you don't have to pay tax when it comes out. So it's a double benefit. It's, uh, you, the money essentially never gets taxed. So who, who, who's been blocking this this whole time? Because, you know... Ben Carson was tooting it back when he was running for president. That means it's been around for a long time. And who's been blocking a health savings account? That Because the appeal has been there for a long time. I believe even Reagan mentioned health savings account at one time or another, correct? Well, look, I mean, they exist. Millions of Americans have them. And so um, it's not that they're none, but the current limits are relatively low. I think it's $7,000 for a family now. And, you know, that... There's no motivation to put up the seven grand because it's not tax deductible. So you've got to really. Um, yeah, you got to be no, affluent. I, I won't say that it hasn't happened. I mean, it has happened to a certain extent, but there's an opportunity to really dramatically expand that. And the other thing is, um, you know, if you can't pay premiums from from the account, which you cannot. Uh, then you still have to have sort of your main insurance policy. And the other thing is currently you can't have it unless you have a qualifying high deductible health plan, uh, which limits the availability to, to a pretty, you know, a subset of the American people. So the expansion would be very significant. Why hasn't it happened yet? As I said, I think it hasn't happened yet uh, because we had too many different health care plans. We had 10 Republican health care plans when we had a Republican House Senate and a White House. And what happens when you have 10 different plans is you end up with nothing. Yeah, it really is uh, amazing. It's like uh, it's like the buyer who doesn't buy. It's uh, just it's it's atrocious that we are as a minority party. I mean, I mean, why is it? Will would they all want to thumb their, their their finger into the wind and get credit for something, or is it just really that they don't agree on anything? Why is it the Republicans have a problem with just being uh, creative and in, uh, innovative? And what is it about us as a minority party? Aren't we like really tired of being a minority party? Why is it we just can't get can't get together? I mean, look, look. <laughs> one thing we did do positively that I thought was negative at the time was emblematic of what I've just said about Republicans just not getting it together. Us running 17 candidates last time has really created a, a, a farce on on the Democrats this time because they did the same thing. <laughs> They ran even more candidates, so... Well, and they're trying to stop Bernie now, like uh, people on our side were trying to stop Trump, and I think it's going to end up the same way. Absolutely. So it's, it's, a, total, it's a total, like, uh, mirror image of last time. Incredible how... What do you think that is emblematic of, of our society, that everybody thinks they can be president? Well, that's, that's pretty common uh, in Latin American countries. Why is, why is America gone that route? Is it, is it just the narcissism of social media and the Internet world and cell phones that all these people think they could be president? 
because you got to say that we had very good candidates. Of our 17, there was governors and senators and really productive people. And uh, the Democratic side, I guess you can say they're governors and senators too, but, I mean, I don't think you can match them person per person. I think there were real charisma on our side. Of course, we're, you and I are biased, obviously, but what is it about this country that thinks it's good for a nation to have 17 candidates in a primary? I don't see, you know, it's a plurality of votes. It's not a popular, uh, it's not a, I don't know. I think what's happened is the sort of the, the, the uh, parties, the political parties have become much, much weaker than they used to be. And there aren't power brokers the way there used to be. There aren't smoke-filled rooms. And you know, yeah, Lyndon, uh, Lyndon Johnson-type rooms. None of that exists now. And so, you know, they can't keep gatecrashers out. Anyone can come in, and if they can build support with the public, uh, then they have a shot. And because we now have a uh, – with, with social media now, you don't even necessarily need to have the, the media on your side. If you've got a message, you probably have – the ability to get it out and get it in front of people and see if it takes off. And so the, uh, you know, the, the, and the other thing is fundraising now is much, much easier than it ever was historically because of the Internet, especially on the Democratic side where they have Act Blue and they've got this incredible small-dollar fundraising infrastructure. You see stuff like, you know, Andrew Yang raised like $10 million in a month or something. And so, you know, you've got this situation now where um, – Anybody basically who's got a message and a little bit of a platform can sort of try it, and if they catch on, they're going to be able to raise a lot of money, and they're going to be able to get probably to at least the first contest or two. And uh, you know, so why not try? Why not throw your hat in the ring and see if see if it happens? See what happens. I mean, no, and it's also you benefit. Got a, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, is in their top two right now. Unbelievable. Anyone really can do it. Now, one thing that I find really alarming is that in in these small contribution campaigns how do you check the ip addresses uh the ip the i um that are not you know i'm sorry not only ip addresses but also credit cards from foreign entities like foreign individuals spending i don't know 20 bucks on elizabeth warren how would you know i mean when when you get those kind of contributions that wrap i mean 10 million dollars for uh, andrew yang i'm imagining they're not thousand dollar donors i imagine they're 20 25 50 dollars how do we know that they're not coming from abroad? Because well, Obama Obama had a huge influx of money from from the the Middle East simply on his name alone, and that investigation was snuffed out, and it was talked about the days after the inauguration in two thousand eight, and I never heard a peep about that again, and only Axelrod and his buddies know how much money came from abroad in Obama's campaign, and it just. Just never happened. No, no investigation. No talk about it. Just swept under the rug. I mean, how do how do we know? I mean, it's a little, we're a little bit off topic now because this is not a health care conversation. But I just thought I'd throw it out there. Uh, I mean, it's a problem with with low dollar donations uh, that you could you, know, you could have situations where you know a, a foreign entity uh, or a, you know a large dollar entity tries to disguise. It's contributions by breaking them up in small chunks and uh, and so forth. And that kind of scheme, of course, is illegal. And in theory, uh, someone could be busted for it and face jail time. But Yeah, but if they're in a foreign country, they're not going to be extradited. I haven't seen much enforcement, and you're right. I mean, there is a lot of evidence uh, that the Clinton campaign and the Obama campaign before that had a significant number of uh, foreign contributors, which, to my knowledge, uh, there was never any action taken on. And I, I believe, I don't remember if it was Hillary or Obama, but one of the major Democratic campaigns 
wasn't even attempting to block uh, credit card donations that had foreign addresses listed on the card. Yeah, absolutely. Now, well, now that this... kind of thing certainly can happen and go on. I think the uh, the sort of the response would be that. Um, you know, they, it's relatively small amounts of money, given you know the the millions and millions that they're raising. It's not like it would be a vector of influence, uh, really, for any kind of foreign government or interest relative, you know, to how much these campaigns are raising. Yeah, well, I guess that's the uh, that's the uh, the moral of the story. If 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 thousands and thousands of people are pointing up twenty bucks, the American government feels that those thousands of people can't manipulate or can't force their hand on the candidate, and I. I believe that if someone if someone really wanted to get compromise a candidate, uh, that's the best way to do it. My country donated to you, sir, and if that's the case, then we're we're you know we're all in jeopardy. So anyway, we'll leave it at that, I guess. And uh, I thank you very much for your call. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, what you say is true that uh, the policy groups uh, finally agree to. Uh, Solve the health care so we can leave it behind us now because eh, I heard <laughs> I've watched the YouTube videos, man, of Reagan uh, really worried about the socialist plans back in the 50s in those GE videos against uh, government health care. And for it still to be a headline item in this country, it's, it's getting pretty ugly. You know, I can see if we don't solve this problem and make it a real market force advantage for American people and the insurance companies you know we we're, we're going to look at or my children actually are going to be looking at single payer healthcare that drove down the gdp in europe you know since the late 70s and to the point where everybody in europe is paying 50 60% taxes to support national healthcare it's real a real devastating component to their to their productivity in terms of gdp europe is just gone i mean you just can't you can't survive in europe you can't i mean Everybody's paying 40, 50, 60% taxes. And uh, the whole cost of living has gone up to the point where there's just no birth rates. 40% sales tax also. Yes, the VAT tax, as well as income tax. I mean, this is just one slippery slope. And I hope to God we we solve this problem once and for all. Because what are we going to do in 2024 when there's no longer a Trump calling everybody names and demoralizing the the media business? They'll go right back to their lies and and their thievery. And we have, can you make a prediction here before you leave? Uh, what do you think happens to us in 2024? Is there a dark horse candidate leader out there that can uh, pick up the Trump baton after Trump's term is up? Well, I, th- I think obviously Mike Pence will run. We might see Don Jr. or Ivanka run and try to carry the Trump name, which will make things complicated in the primary. But Ivanka might not have, she's not She's not Republican yet. Do we know if she switched parties already? Because she was a Democrat. It, it, <laughs> she, she did switch parties, but she did not switch in time to vote for her father. In yes, the, this is true. Primary <laughs> in that, she in will the, be able to vote for him this time, I believe. Uh, I, I think that uh, the, the guy to watch, I think, is Josh Hawley from Missouri. Uh, who is, uh, he's only like 40 years how about, old. How about Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida? He's another guy to watch, definitely. And uh, for that matter, also your uh, your, your senator as well. Marco? Uh, Scott, I think he's very much considering it based on the fact he's already run ads in Iowa this year. Marco Rubio, he'd have to get a box too. I don't think all three of them are going to try, but who knows? <laughs> I guess they could. Yeah, Marco, I was uh, I was a supporter of his back in 2010. Rick I was... Scott could be like another uh, Trump or Bloomberg because he can pay for his own campaign. 
<laughs> yeah, but Rick, man, Rick, uh, Rick doesn't have that charisma. I mean, he, I, I'm amazed how well he did here in Florida because, man, he really didn't offer as much in terms of speech. Making. I like how he doesn't pay for a landslide. He just pays enough to, you know, just to win by a couple votes. <laughs> he sure did, and uh, he he doesn't, know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't waste money. He'll spend just enough, and that's it. Yeah, he's a frugal guy, man. Well, thank you very much for your call. All right, have a good one. Take care. Yeah, that was uh, Phil Kirpin of the American Commitment. And uh, as you can see, uh, there's there's some hope that Republicans actually have a study group that actually can really push the health savings account that uh, I first investigated it when, uh, when Mr. Carson uh, spoke about it. It just made so much sense that it's a, uh, a great way to get fat cells like me to never really put on weight, never you know, keep diabetes at bay, especially if it's in your gene pool. And there's not enough talk about gene pool among Americans. You know, they, they pretty much condition the American people to believe that all the diseases they get are uh, based on behavior, not on genetic lineage. And I'm sorry to say that I, I believe that it's, with the exception of alcoholism and drug abuse, obviously... And, of course, the smoking, uh, with those exceptions of those behavioral patterns, everything else is gene pool. And the question is, until we, until we dig deeper into the DNA chromosomes of, of, of each other as we reproduce with our mates, we're gonna, we have to some come to grips with our, uh, our kids having to question their love of who they're going to marry and reproduce because they're going to be able to pay for a... a a detailed study of what are the likelihood of diseases among their offspring. And that's going to be one cold day in hell in um, modern societies that are going to actually have to look at each other and say, honey, I love you, but we can't have children because all our kids are going to have yada, 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 cancer, diabetes, leukemia, birth defects, who who knows? It's almost too much information, you know? And especially when it comes to autism and Down syndrome, which affects me personally. So we're about five minutes to six o'clock. At seven o'clock, an hour from now, we're going to have my good friend Adam Levinson with the Statues and Stories segment of this show, where he talks about uh, the historical remnants of our past, the historical implications of how this country was founded. And he basically, it's almost as if he's memorized the diary of the founding of this nation. And you can go, always go to his website, statuesandstory.com, and see what he spoke about on any given Monday. And our, our recordings of our conversations are on our website, wsqfradio.com, under Statues and Stories, as well as these recordings on The Concrete Conservative. We have a toll-free number. I usually don't take calls. Uh, because of my guests, uh, take up all the call time. It's one eight four four six four five nine seven seven three. Locally, it's a great number. I can't believe I have it. 305-365-7777. Got to admit, that's as good, if not better, than a taxi. So uh, we like to talk and talk and talk and talk conservative stuff here. Also, if you're a liberal and you want to sit here live inside the studio with me, 
I would appreciate that very much because banter is always a good thing. Dialogue is always a good thing. And I'm willing to take the heat and I'm willing to stay in the kitchen with you. So if you are someone who preferably who lives here in Key Biscayne, so the, the commute is not an issue, and you would like to sit here in front of me during the Concrete Conservative, liberals are always welcome. And I will explain to you your political bipolarity and you will explain to me my insanity because liberals want to call me crazy all the time. And I've already, um, you know, confessed that I was a deplorable, but I'm a reformed deplorable. I mean, I was I was originally a Ted Cruiser, and I was a Tea Partier, and I'm also a supporter of the Convention of States, Article 5, amending the Constitution without Congress. By the way, we're at 15 states and counting, and when we get to 31 states, we can call this convention, and uh, in that convention... The state legislator will appoint us as delegates, and it could be anyone. It doesn't necessarily have to be an elected person. And I believe that there is a strong chance that we this convention uh, might come to come to be. I believe that uh, there have been many threats of the convention of states to propose amendments to the constitution. It's not a constitutional convention; it's actually a convention of the states to propose amendments to the constitution. And there is a chance, of course. Uh, I'm dreaming of, you know, the repeal of the income tax and the repeal of direct voting of senators. I believe that that was a big disaster in 1913 to to basically illegally pass the progressive income tax, punishing wealth and having a tremendous swath of the country not paying any taxes at all. I believe nobody should be paying taxes on their wages because I believe it was private property. And I believe the... The Supreme Court said so in 1896, I believe, and they passed progressive income tax and called all all wages income derived. So my issue is to repeal it, and as soon as we do, our kids will be better for it, and America will be better for it, and corporations will no longer get a pass. Liberals love to talk about about Amazon not paying taxes, but at the same time, they don't have any regard for Income tax, because your wage is not income. Income is what you invest in, put at risk, using public services and infrastructure for the investment to thrive, and that includes all the publicly traded companies you invest in in stocks and bonds. In that manner, that you put up the risk, then yeah, the profit you make upon the, the risk you took should be and must be taxed. But wages? Come on, man. You sweat equity that. It's an agreement between your employer and you. They can't compensate you for the your skill and your craft and your health and well-being and your discipline to get to work on time over and over again consistently. There's no other way to compensate you than with a wage, with money. Because what you gave them can never be returned to you. Your time, your skill, your craft, your health and well-being in time and place. It's private property period. The whole scam that is progressive income tax is what has got us all perturbed. Not to mention the pressure of having to file. The pressure of having to file correctly. The need to have an accountant file for you. Then you get money back that you think is a refund. It's just money that they overtax you and you they give it right back to you. So it's a situation where none of it is good. And um, 
it can be repealed through Article 5, Convention of States. You want to look it up? Google Convention of States and uh, join us. That'd be really cool. Now, as far as my Tea Party activism, you know, we're alive and well. We communicate. Money's being raised. People think that we, like, died after Obamacare was passed right, you know, right through us. Not true. Tea Parties uh, are, are proud to say that they're, they're Tea Partiers. And tax enough already as a mantra is not necessarily uh, what we stand for anymore because it's always been about we're taxed enough already. But we're definitely holding, um, we changed the name, it's called the Freedom Caucus, and our uh, congressmen pretty much hold the rest of the House's feet to the fire. I believe that you should be very proud of the Freedom Caucus members, Jim Jordan, Meadows, DeSantis was one before he became governor of Florida. Those are the ones who really fought hard for Obama. I mean, geez, shame on me, shame on me really fought hard for Trump during the impeachment hearings. These people uh, were all Freedom Caucus members, and they did a damn good job. Tell me they didn't. So we're in a situation now where we, we, we've, you know, we've got the DNC by the juggler. You know, we, we've got the rhinos in our party exposed, people like Romney, exposing themselves as the rhinos that they are, people that I'm very uncomfortable with, how they flim-flam, wiggle and waddle. They don't quite, Susan Collins being another one, Markowski of Alaska being another, and there's a few more that if they were up for re-election, they will, they will expose themselves in this election. And we have to find alternatives for them because they crack under pressure. And they're not necessarily supporting Trump in any way or form. Like one one rhino who's somehow firming his his positions up is uh, John Cornyn, Cornyn of Texas. Ted is so conservative that Cornyn had to ease up on his rhino instincts because he was looking flim-flam next to Ted, who shares that big state of Texas. So one thing that that Trump has helped us with, not that he's super conservative, don't get me wrong. A lot of the stuff he's passed, including that, those enormous budgets, I recognize that he shut down the government to send the message the first time. And forget it, the, the, the deep state and the, the massiveness of the federal government doesn't allow a president without super majorities in the House and Senate to shut down the government. But Democrats love when you shut down the government. Trump is probably the only guy who can shut down the government for a long period of time, make everybody sell their homes in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, bankrupt the whole damn area with the highest GDP of the entire country is that area of Montgomery County, highest salaries, highest, highest salary, uh, highest wealth per family, per capita, that whole you know, Northern Virginia disgustingness of statists and bureaucrats and people who live in, off the federal government, if you really want to chop 20%, 30% of the federal government, you shut it down for six months and everybody go get another job and let these people sue for their employment contracts because they're unionized federal employees. Did you know who unionized federal employees? It wasn't FDR. 
You didn't answer. It was JFK. And then made worse by Richard Nixon. And made worse by Jimmy Carter. The three of those freaks, I wish wish I could call them out, but the three of them unionized federal employees, made it impossible to fire them. So fire them anyway. Pink slips for everybody. You reduce the size of the federal government by 20 to 30%, and non-discretionary spending will still be paid. So in a government shutdown, you know, the most important stuff like Social Security checks and our military, those those checks are in the mail. So everybody who scares you that, oh, my God, uh, the poor elderly won't get the Social Security checks in a government sh- shutdown, that is not true. You know, the non-discretionary spending is, you know, national parks, a lot of, lot of the bureaucracy, Department of Education, uh, the bureaucracy of actually administering housing and urban development, commerce. I believe Treasury, uh, I think the Treasury gets paid. Parts of the Treasury gets paid because it has to do with the stability of the economy and the, and the U.S. Mint and the Federal Reserve uh, Federal Reserve folks get paid. So it might require just a long, drawn-out federal shutdown to reduce the size of government. So here's a good question for you. I ask this a lot. I start my book, The Fiscals, this way. What's the largest economy in the world? People say the United States. So I ask the China man, What's the largest economy in the world? And they say it's the People's Republic of China. There, there are different ways to uh, uh, determine which of the two countries are larger. I think it's safe to say the the American economy is larger by about two or three trillion. One's twenty two trillion USA, and the, the Chinese are around fifteen, sixteen, or seventeen trillion. But the cost of the goods that they manufacture is much cheaper than the cost of goods we manufacture. So there is a PPP parity formula that claims that they got a stronger economy than we do. Obviously, that is those statements are pre-coronavirus. Uh, coronavirus uh, might change everything. But be as it may, the magic question is, what is the third largest economy in the world? Wrong. You didn't have an answer. Most people would say Japan, India. Wrong again. It's the U.S. government by itself. The U.S. government by itself is the third largest ecosystem in the world. I can't call it an economy because the money they spend is printed or received by taxpayers. Late, by the way. The United States taxpayer pays their taxes very late. Don't think for a moment people pay on time. They don't. We print money. We bond money to pay our bills when it's owed. And that includes countries that owe us. We'll print money to foreign banks that owe us money in, in foreign aid through their governments. And we'll print the money for them to pay us back. And we'll charge them an interest rate a little higher than the previous loan. That's called fiat currency. So when you think of how much money we print, how much we own, the lands we own, the energy underneath the land, 
the military armaments, the replacement value of tanks, planes, automobiles, aircraft carriers, the buildings, the payroll, the procurement, how much we spend for pencils and papers and copy machines of all the bureaucracy, the entire bureaucracy of the United States government and all the states, that's 38%. 38% of $22 trillion. What's that add up to? Do the math. 38% of $22 trillion is it around $8.3 trillion ecosystem. And Japan is between 6 and $7 trillion. So we're a trillion larger than Japan. That's just a government. Think about that, folks. Think about it. Without the U.S. government, we're not, we're not the economy we think we are. So who in the hell wants to shrink the size of the federal government? No one. No one wants to shrink the size of the federal government because it needs to be inefficient, bloated, and ridiculous spending so that everybody can steal from it. And that is just the harshest of all realities, which leads you to believe and understand why all the world's debt has to be in dollars. And anybody who wants to change that, including our enemies, are in for big trouble. We'll depose you. We'll keep the wars going to make sure that you understand the United States remains supreme whether you like it or not. I wonder if our enemies even really want us to fall. We like to talk about it all the time. But can they really afford to not have the dollar circulating all over the world? I mean, what, you're just going to leave it up to the euro? Please, the pound sterling? Police, no economy is large enough and can grow as fast as ours. Why? Because we somehow, in some bizarre way, we remain free. And I think as long as American people are armed, armed to the teeth with the right to bear arms, we'll stay free. The minute they find a way to disarm us, we're no longer free. The world of despots and tyranny and, and dictatorship and abuse and the total elimination of civil rights and individual liberties are nations that somehow, some way, convince themselves to be disarmed. Think about all the nations that are in some type of uh, despotic state or surf state. And I'm talking about Europeans. They're all disarmed. All these nations are disarmed. This nation is still free because the government has a limit to where it can go before shots are fired. You know what I mean? It's just that simple. Um, We are a nation of free citizens simply because we have the right to bear arms. And anybody who says otherwise is just a liberal. Just another progressive virus, tainted, scarred, upset reality. You know what I mean? You know what the biggest problem is? Is that... uh, Liberal people, and I have some liberal friends that I find to be very intelligent and articulate, they do rationalize the irrational. They do think government has some kind of personality that make things better. And they do like to think that we're already socialists because of our public school system and our police and fire. Well, those aren't socialistic ideas. Those are public service sector, public service sector. Things have to be neutral in our society, like police and fire, 
simply because you can't afford to have a fire department that won't put out a fire of the building owned by an enemy. If it were private, if someone had a grudge and they had a private fire department, you know what? There's a fire in your neighborhood and they might not, they might not put it out. I mean, come on. And it's just obvious. Same with police. You can't have selective enforcement of laws, even though a lot of people say that that is actually happening. Selective enforcement of laws. I think that there's pretty evidence to that. But you really can't have a police force funded privately. There's so many nuances that uh, it's just not possible. And as far as the public school system, you know how I feel about that. It's not in the Constitution. Therefore, the founders knew right away that public schooling was a no-no. Government controlling our schools only will teach our children poverty, unanswered grievances, plight. It just, it just, I'm so, I'm so fearful of going down a rabbit hole because, you know, I can speak for another 45 minutes about the public school and I just don't want, I just don't want to. I really don't. I'd rather just change the subject. You know that uh, right now as we speak, there are laws on the books, not passed yet, but there are bills to put, uh, you know, patients that owe doctors and hospitals, put them in jail for not paying their health care bills. You know that there's uh, other bills that convicted felons, if they're going to be given the right to vote again after uh, after going to jail, after finishing their terms, they have to pay their legal bills before they can vote again. So what do you think about those those realities? Imagine if sick patients who are cash-strapped from not having insurance or having inadequate insurance, and they owe the doctor a lot of money, imagine being incarcerated. <laughs> can you believe that? What kind of society is that? I mean, you know, that makes single-player health Healthcare appealing all of a sudden. So I wonder who's behind these things. Who's actually pushing for these kind of laws? Is that a way to to handcuff us into single payer healthcare one way or the other? Ask your opinion how much they like having sixty percent taxes, fifty eight, fifty four, VAT taxes. Does even does the average American even know what a value added tax is when they tax every stage of the production process to bring a product to market. All the suppliers who sell to assembly plants and manufacturing facilities, each one of these vendors being taxed as the major supplier assembles all these uh, ingredients if it's a perishable item, but uh, raw materials if it's not, taxed to the point where every stage of the game from assembly, from manufacturing, from molding, all the way to distribution, palletizing to the market, straight to the store. All that is taxed, the whole process. And, of course, the sales tax at the end. That's gross amount of tax. Therefore, easily doubling the price of a product. Think about that. If you don't get rid of the income tax that I talked about earlier, and these freakazoid liberals get empowered to the point where they have Filibuster-proof Senate, making it the 12th filibuster-proof Senate since 1911, and a majority in Congress, and no Trump in the White House, they'll stick a VAT tax right down your throat, as well as the income tax. And they'll go right back to the old marginal rates, 
and you can see the GDP sink again, and people, and food lines, and unemployment, and crime in the streets. Because when people are hungry, violence goes up. I think that's a known fact. I think that uh, so much of what we're hearing in the news is the fact that we're not hearing in the news. Um, all of a sudden, things to be things seem to be quiet. I bet you they're just as violent as they've always been. I just don't think they're talking about it as much anymore. I think, uh, you know, I, th- I think Chicago is just as violent as always been. Apparently, St. Louis is number one. Did you know that? Did you know that St. Louis is number one in crime now? It's no longer Chicago. And um, that says something. I want to know what's going on in St. Louis, Missouri, for there to be that much crime. I'm telling you, man, we've got to do something really innovative, something bold and outside of the biggest box on the right side of history if we're ever going to fix this country. So we just just basically just turn a page. I'll be back in a moment. Listen to some Bob Seeger. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free. <laughs> 